0: Is it working? Excellent. Great. I'm Eddie, Shane Hughes. I'm one of the ministers here. I just wasn't getting that feedback. It was, it was, it was complete. Uh, there are two things of which I am sure this morning. The first is that Jesus is Lord. The second thing is simple. Last week was a terrible week to shave my beard because it is cold. <laughs> and because it's cold, I'm especially glad you are here. Uh, for those of you that are in the room, I am particularly glad you chose to brave and come out into the weather. For those of you that are online, uh, I'm glad that you are here and staying cozy at home. That might be the best choice for you in your situation. We're going to start a new series uh, this week, um, and we're going to be focusing on the Sermon on the Mount this spring. We're going to be walking our way through this text together, because Jesus is going up a mountain. It's like Abraham, the father of many nations, went up a mountain with his son, his only son, Isaac, in tow. And he is sent up the mountain to test the covenant of God. But when Abraham gets to the mountain, it is not he who speaks. Jesus is going up a mountain. Like Moses, the most significant leader in Israel's history, went up Mount Sinai. And he, he is sent up the mountain to, to seek the wisdom of God, to lead the people to the promised land. And that mountain was holy. The people could not even touch it But when Moses is on the mountain, it is not he who speaks. Jesus is going up the mountain like Elijah, perhaps the most prominent uh, prophet in Israel, goes up the mountain. And he is sent up the mountain to seek the protection of God. He's being chased by a wicked king. But when Elijah is on the mountain, it is not he who speaks. Jesus is going up a mountain. But Matthew wants you to know He is not like these others. In all these cases, Abraham, Moses, Elijah, they hear the voice of God when they take the trek up the mountain. But in Jesus' case, he sits down and he speaks. Jesus is different. And so we're going to spend this spring, we're going to listen carefully to the words that Jesus spoke on the mountain. We're going to listen carefully because of all the books in the Bible, it's it's probable that the gospel, these four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're the most important. Now, all scripture is valuable and useful, but some is more useful than others. The gospels may be the most important because that is our closest window to who God is. If you want to know what God looks like, look at Jesus. If you want to know how God loves, look at Jesus. If you want to know what God says, look at Jesus. And this section of Matthew is particularly powerful. If you want to know who Jesus is, read the Sermon on the Mount. Read it over and over and over. So I want to challenge you to do a couple of things this spring as we start this new series. The first thing I want you to do is, is as much as it's in your power, try to show up each week as much as it depends on you. I get that some people aren't in charge of their own transportation, I get that, you can't always go. Some people have uh, jobs and responsibilities that take you out on Sunday mornings, I get that. But as much as it depends on you, hear the words of Jesus each Sunday. And if you can't hear the words of Jesus each Sunday, then, then open up your Bible and, and throughout the week, read the Sermon on the Mount. It's, it's three short chapters. It's a beautiful section. Read the book of Matthew and see how it fits into that, that space. And I want to challenge you to, to be in, this, in these words each week. To kind of live through this trek through the mountain. And the second thing I want to ask you to do is like showing up, but I want you to show up Ready? Because I think there's about a hundred different hats that you can put on during a sermon time at church, right? There's a million different ways that you can choose to listen to a sermon. And a lot of us have some defenses because we've experienced the presence of God, and it has challenged us in a way that we weren't ready for yet, and so we didn't know what to do with that. And so some of us in our hearts are holding on to things that we have no business holding on to. And so when we're challenged by God's Word, when we're challenged by the Spirit moving through us, sometimes we resist it. That happens. You're human beings. It happens. And so I want you to be intentional about the hat or the armor that you put on as we're coming together to hear God's Word. I want you to try to show up each week as much as it depends on you. And the second thing is I want you to listen with a heart, that's not easily distracted. Because I think the distraction may just be the defense mechanism that keeps you from being transformed by the power of God. So we're, gonna, we're going to begin the Sermon on the Mount at the end. So we're going to start with the last story that Jesus tells, and then next week I have an obligation, and, and Randy is going to be here, and he's going he's gonna to begin us again at the beginning of the Beatitudes. But today, I want us to to start hearing the words of Jesus on the mountain from Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise person who built their house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds beat and battered the house, but the house did not fall because it was built. Founded on the rock. Now, the person that hears these words of mine, that's Jesus, but does not act on them is like a foolish one who builds their house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds beat and battered the house and it fell. And great was its fall. Now when Jesus had finished saying these words, the crowds were astonished. Because at his teachings for he taught them as one with authority and not as their scribes will you pray with me heavenly father we're grateful for this time today i'm grateful for the words of charles and ashley that have, have already primed our hearts to hear what you have to say i'm grateful for these words of worship that we've sung over one another prayed over one another for our hearts have been stirred and we were ready for So, Father, send your spirit among us. Speak, for your servants are listening. Father, we're grateful for this warm space to gather. We're mindful of those that do not have the resources for warmth right now. We pray that you protect them. Father, to this end, I pray you pour through me the gift of preaching, that I may speak your truth and love to these, your people. It's together that the church says. So what I'm going to talk a, tell a story about probably the most famous, poorly-built tower in the world. In fact, probably many of you have been there, or at least seen pictures of your friends that have been there. Of course, you know I'm talking about the Leaning Tower of Pisa. Now, nine times out of ten, the person that's taking the picture of Leaning Tower of Pisa has, has some sort of action like this, right? They're, they're trying to push the tower back up, and, and you have to wonder, like, how did this come to happen? And the reality is the leading tower of Pisa is, is the bell tower of a church complex, but they just they built it outside as its kind of its own structure. And the Pisa, the, the tower wasn't structurally sound, and they, they realized this after they built the third floor. Eight stories tall, two ton bells that are going to hang in the top. They can't ring those bells, by the way, because ringing the bells would c- create enough sway and motion. It would just knock the tower over. They stopped doing that about 150 years ago. Um, so they got to the flo- third floor. They realized there was a problem, and they just kept on building. And the lean became worse and worse. And then there was a war and a, a time of... Um, you know, deficit, budget deficits, and so they couldn't finish the tower, and about a hundred years later, they come back, and they say, okay, we're gonna finish putting this tower up, and, and the, the engineers and architects at that time said, what we're gonna do, because it's kind of leaning like this, is we're gonna make this side a little bit taller than this side, so instead of kind of building rectangle uh, levels, we're gonna build tra- kind of trapezoidal ones, and see if we can kind of just, like, give it the appearance of a straight tower. It didn't work. Um, The tower where they were afraid it was going to fall over until about 1990 when they corrected the lean by 19 inches Now I have a theory here that they didn't actually want to fix the Leaning Tower of Pisa because then it would just be the Tower of Pisa and nobody would care about it anymore Um, It wouldn't be the tourist destination that it was and so they just tried to fix it a little bit at a cost of 30 million euros but i got to ask the question again. Did anyone say to themselves at the fourth floor, as they know this thing isn't working, maybe we ought to fix this? Nobody did. And this isn't a problem of, of, of like, at time. This isn't kind of some sort of chronological, chronological snobbery because the Millennium Tower in San Francisco, by the way, is leaning 22 inches and has sunk two feet into the ground. Um, and the problem is, is that the... Uh, Soil under the tower is clay and it goes about 180 feet before you hit bedrock And they didn't want to drill that far down. And so they just thought yeah 100 feet is probably enough and it wasn't Uh, You also have to remember it's pretty close to the San Andreas Fault, which makes leaning towers a little more risky And so the city of San Francisco began a hundred million dollar fix to write Millennium Tower and so far, this fix has only increased the lean by three more inches. It's not working. But I, but I don't know if we get to throw rocks in Abilene. I have, I have this one door in my house that in the morning when I close it, it kind of wedges like the, the foundation is tip, tipped it, But by like the afternoon, if I open it, it's fine. Right, like A friend of mine said there are two types of houses in Abilene. There are those that have foundation issues and those that are about to have foundation issues. That's just, that's just the way it is. Jesus tells this story at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, this teaching section in Matthew. And for 2,000 years... Scholars and theologians and thinkers and leaders have argued over it. And the, the, basically the argument hangs around one issue. There's one question that they're really debating when you drill down. The question is, regarding the Sermon on the Mount, is Jesus serious? Does he really want us to try to live this way? And different theologians have different takes on it in different ways. You know, Luther thought, Martin Luther thought the the sermon was the rocks that we break ourselves upon to find grace. He thought it was kind of put into the Bible as this means by which we realize that we're not perfect enough to do this on our own. We need God's grace. And I'm just going to put all my cards on the table for this series. This is where we're going to go. I want just to be absolutely clear with all of you. Luther was right about many things, but in this case, I think Luther was wrong. The Sermon on the Mount is something that Jesus wants us to try. You may not get it right when Jesus tells you not to worry. You may struggle with it when Jesus tells you not to lust. You may wrestle with Jesus' words when he says not to seek revenge, but even better, love your enemies. You may not get it right, but I think we're supposed to try. And maybe this is why he ends his words with a story about two houses. And the foundation that we build our lives upon. The nice thing about this text is that we get it. The nice thing about this story is that in Abilene, you kind of understand this intuitively. You don't have to cross 2,000 years of distance. Because in Abilene, it doesn't rain for months. And except for the most protected uh, rivers, the creek beds all dry up. They're all gone. I used to drive around town and tell my kids, hey, we're passing Catclaw Creek. And they would look out the window and they would say, where? Because they didn't see it. And for nine months out of the year, that's absolutely true. It's nothing but a gully that you can just kind of drive over in bridges. Some years you can walk across Lytle Lake and not get your feet wet. It's not because it's a miracle. It's because the lake isn't there. But when the rain comes, woe to the person who built their house in Catclaw Creek. When the rain comes, woe to the person who built their house on the dry bed of Lytle Lake. When the rain comes, woe to anybody that's driving on North First, because that's a wreck, right? Um, Andrew Fuller says it like this. Our Lord is not discoursing on, uh, on our, our being justified by faith, but our being judged according to our works, which, though consistent with the others, is not the same thing and must not be confounded with it. The character described is not the self-righteous rejecter of the gospel, but the one, though they may hear it and profess it and believe it, yet bring forth no corresponding fruit. It is not a passage suited to expose the errors of the non-believer, but the one which needs to be pressed upon all of us. They who hold, only believe, and all is well. And this text begins with a therefore, which tells us that Jesus is summing up what he has just been saying. And in the previous text, we see Jesus is not talking about those who believe their good work will earn them a spot in heaven. Rather, Jesus calls his disciples to enter into the narrow gate and a warning against false prophets and bad actors and denouncing that empty profession of faith. In the verse right before this one, Jesus did not depict himself as wooing sinners, but the judge telling the hypocrites, depart from me, you that work evil. And this, this story runs parallel to another story that Matthew tells later in the book it's another parable of the ten bridesmaids and they're waiting for the bridegroom and if you don't know the story it goes like this there's, there's ten bridesmaids and they're waiting for the wedding party to start and they bring their oil with them but half of them bring enough oil for a long wait and the other half don't, don't bring enough oil and so the bridegroom is delayed in the coming to the wedding, and so everyone just kind of falls asleep. And, and then when the bridegroom shows up, those that didn't have enough oil, they say to the ones that brought enough, hey, give us some of your oil, because we just, we ran out. Our, our, our lamps have gone out. And, and the ones that have enough oil say, well, we can't give it to you. Quickly go to the store and get some more so that you can have oil, too. And they they leave with the bridegroom, and the other five rush to the store. And when they get to the the bridal party, when they get to the the party, the the door is shut and locked against them. And and the key to the story is they're all bridesmaids. They're all insiders. This isn't a conversation about, about those who have faith and those that don't. This is a conversation about what you do with the faith you have. And the difference between those bridesmaids is What's inside? what you can't see. Because the text doesn't say the wise are those who hear my words and understand them. The text doesn't say the wise are those who hear my words and believe in me. And did you notice all the parallels in the text? It's exactly the same in in Greek or in in your translation. The rains fall, the flood comes, the wind blows and it beats against the house. The rain fall, the the floods come, the winds blow and beat against the house. It's the same whether you're living in the, the foolish one or the wise one. And what that tells us is that trouble is going to come. Being a Christian will not give you a pass on suffering, but it will give you a way through it. What Jesus is saying in this section is that every philosophy in your life will be tested. Everything that you believe, everything that you hold dear, everything that you think is true, everything that you rely upon, all of it is going to be tested. The question is what remains. In fact, believing that you will get a pass because you believe in Jesus uh, when you suffer may be maybe the sand that your house is built on. Maybe believing the lie that because somehow you go to church, you're going to be special, you're going to avoid all those problems. When trouble comes, when the storm blows, you're going to fall apart. Jesus doesn't give you a pass on suffering, but he does give you a way through it. He shows you how to live. The difference is not us versus the world. It's those who hear and try versus those who hear and do nothing. And you can imagine the anemic churches who've never tried. You can imagine those who have never used the gifts that God gave them, just left them wrapped in the cellophane, sitting in a closet somewhere. Never let the Spirit unshackle them from the weight of their own sin and the baggage that they carry. They never let their ego and their will and their sense of self-prestige die for the sake of obtaining something more. You can imagine the church that, that never let Jesus show them what happens to you when you resist sin for an hour or a weekend or a year. This is the story of Pilate and his conversation with Jesus. At, at the end of Jesus' life, he's brought before Pilate, and then they have this conversation. And it's, it's fascinating if you read the text, because, because Jesus just stands there asking questions. And Pilate is nervous. He walks into the room, and he comes out of the room, and he replies to Jesus, and Jesus answers, and he goes philosophical to find a way around it. And you can tell by the end of that story that Pilate wants to let Jesus go. Pilate can find nothing wrong with who Jesus is, but Jesus, but Pilate, he cannot let go of the power that he holds that is beholden to Caesar. He could let it all go and he could follow Jesus, but he chooses to hold it because he thinks what he has right now is greater than what Jesus can offer him, and he sends him to die. This is why part of the pathway here at Highland is the section on the cross, I think there's something very harmful about a church that offers good worship and convicting preaching without calling you to something more. And here at Highland, we have fantastic worship. Our worship is incredible. Our preaching's good enough. Um, but if that's all it that goes, then we've, we've done a disservice. We create an need Did you just say amen? To, uh, uh, <laughs> all right, whatever. If we don't call you to something more, then we haven't. We haven't done what God has called us to. Because what it does is it makes the experience of discipleship rooted in the feeling of worship and the experience of God speaking to your heart as the destination. But that's not the destination. Worship is not the destination. It's the means much to convict you and to encourage you to keep forward. The call of God is not the destination. It's to do what God has asked you to do. It's just the call. And this kind of thinking replaces doing the work of God with thinking about doing the work of God, and you can see why this is harmful. So choose choose the foundation you want now. And I, I, w- I specifically want to talk to the the younger folk in our audience. If you're if you're in high school or if you're in college or even like seventh and eighth graders. Because I think, I think your minds are in a place where there's possibilities that, that are harder for the rest of us. Our, our brains, they get more calcified. It's harder for us to think of new things. Uh, choose the foundation that you want now. Choose the kind of community that you want to live in now. I mean, what sort of spiritual neighborhood do you want to grow up in and do you want to raise your family in? What kind of people do you want to surround yourself with that'll help you get closer to heaven? I think that's what the Sermon on the Mount is designed to do. It's designed to create a spiritual neighborhood where you can flourish. The kind of neighborhood where when you make a mistake, it's not vengeance that gets brought upon you, but forgiveness. The kind of neighborhood where you can trust those around you, that their yes means yes, and they keep their covenants, and they're not working out of anger or rage, but out of a sense of mercy and peace. I think that's the neighborhood that God is trying to create around us. The kind of neighborhood where we're not worried or anxious, but rather we wait for what God says, and then we move. I got to tell you the truth. That's the kind of world I want to live in. That's the kind of place I want to be. You have to choose the foundation now. Um, they don't let people into the top 10 stories of the Millennium Tower. And the whole purpose of the Tower of Pisa was to ring the bells to summon the people to God. And they cannot ring the bell for fear that the whole thing's going to fall over. There is a risk of a poor foundation eliminating you for doing the work that God has called you to do. There's a risk that a poor foundation with with shaky philosophy creates an environment where you think that the purpose that you have to serve is so much smaller than what God has in store for you. So let me tell you why I want us to try. Because I want us to create, I want the power of the Spirit in the midst of us create the kind of community that Jesus calls to you. It's the kind of community I want to live in. And the second reason why I want you to try is because Jesus, Jesus tried. Now, Jesus didn't fail. Jesus, Jesus will not fail. But what Jesus shows in his life is the effort of living out the words that he spoke in the Sermon on the Mount. John Boyles pointed this out to me like six months ago, and I haven't been able to get it out of my head. It's the reason that we're doing this today. is because you can draw a straight line between the words that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount and what he does surrounding the crucifixion. When Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray, he can draw a straight line between what he does there and Gethsemane. You can draw a straight line between what he says about don't worry and be anxious to what he says. Let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but yours be done. You can see what he says about revenge and visions when people come and mock him and strike him, and he does nothing in return. He doesn't, always, he doesn't only do this for himself. He does this for Peter, which says to me that the disciples aren't exempt from trying. Jesus staked everything in his life on the foundation that the love of, that God was offering him would not abandon him even unto death. That is the foundation that Jesus lives by, is that God the Father would never fail him. And you might say to yourself, well, what about what Jesus says on the cross? I mean, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Obviously, you don't understand the Bible. Somebody that says that to you doesn't understand the Bible. What Jesus is doing is he's he's quoting Psalm 22. Jesus knew the Bible. Jesus knew every 150 Psalms by heart. And what he says there is the first line of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus isn't there asking where God is on that moment on the cross. Jesus is praying. Jesus isn't asking where God is on that moment on the cross. Jesus is singing. And he probably doesn't have the breath to say the whole thing. And so he says the first line so you know exactly where he is. And the first line of that psalm asks the question, where is God? But the last line of that psalm answers the question. Our God will never fail. So where do you want to build your foundation? What kind of community do you want to build? I want to build my life like a tower that can ring the bells announcing the victory of Jesus, the coming of God's kingdom, and the peace that that brings. And I have a suspicion that you do too. So why don't together, why don't we try? Will you please stand for our benediction? island, may you stay warm this week. It's going to be cold outside. May you be mindful of your neighbors and those that have less resources than you. Watch out for them because they might need help. And so may you go this week with the courage that God has given you. May you shine like Jesus to everyone you meet. May the Spirit convict you of all the good that you have to do in this world because you are destined for more than you can imagine. Be filled with God's love and go in peace.